It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm with Zerlina Maxwell, and we have a guest today that we are really excited to have this conversation with. It's Fiona Hill. Uh, she was the star of the first impeachment trial and the author of a new book, There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. Fiona Hill, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> well, it's great to be here. No, it's, um, I, I love this energy in the morning. You're certainly waking me up and I haven't had my coffee yet. <laughs> That's good. I've been enjoying no, listening in and, as well. <laughs> well, in the eight o'clock hour, this is when my caffeine has kicked in. So I'm like a lot more lively <laughs> once like, you know, the caffeine has started circulating. Um, but one of the things that uh, I, th- I find so fascinating, um, just about your, your professional career and trajectory. Um, and, you know, you go in, to a lot of uh, how you grew up in Northern England in the book. But I love how you talk about the fact that you you ended up sort of seated next to Putin. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it's because you were a nondescript woman that they wouldn't really pay attention to. And so you kind of got like to hear all of the real conversations. And I love that. So can I just want to start there. I mean, how 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 was it to be seated next to Vladimir Putin? What is that like? Yeah, well, let's just say that was a bit of a surprise when uh, I was seated next to him, and I was like, "Why am I here? Oh my god!" <laughs> and all these things went through my head because you know it was basically it was part of a conference that all kinds of people who were you know, Russia scholars from universities and think tanks, you know, like me and journalists and others were invited to. And this is actually still going on, you know, somewhere behind the scenes, but it started in 2004. And I'm on two occasions, there I am right next to Putin. And on one of them, I was the National Intelligence Officer for Russia at the um, National Intelligence Council. So my immediate thought was like, hey, it's because they think I'm a big spy. And so I was having all my big Judy Dench M thoughts going through in my head. And I was like, oh, wow. And then I thought, well, maybe not. And then I thought, well, I'm, what do they profile everyone? Think I'm the least likely person to stab him with a fork during dinner? And I mean, I seriously have all these things. I thought, oh, my God, I could touch the guy. No, but not touch him. You know, he'd kill me in an instant. And right. it's just all this stuff is just swarming around my head. And then I'm like, um, there must be some reason why I'm here. This can't be that random. And then eventually after the dinner, and of course I took every advantage sitting there, you know, looking in really closely. I was so close. I mean, you know, I really could have touched him and, you know, taking everything in. He didn't really say too much to me. Um, And then I talked to the PR people afterwards because one of the PR uh, people was on the other side. And I said, why was I there? And I'm just waiting for all the exciting reasons. And they Mm -hmm. said, well, because we didn't want to distract attention away from him. And I was like, say what? And they said, well, um, yeah, well, you know, Fiona, you're kind of nice and all that. We, we like you, but you just, you know, you're not too, you're not distracting. Uh, you're not too old. You're not too young. You know, you were kind of wearing nice, modest clothes, no plunging neckline. It was saying all this to me in Russian. And I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. gosh. And I remember that there was this really beautiful Italian journalist there with a very plunging neckline. And I guess, yeah, mm-hmm. I suppose might people might have been looking elsewhere than Putin or some guys anyway would have been. And I was like, really? Oh, 
And I just realized I was just a piece of tableware. I could have just been a napkin or a, I don't know, a, a glass or, or something. Or it was, maybe it was a double blind and it was still the spy thing. And that yeah, was just part been, of continuing. Been, I mean, yeah. It was just much that's... more, but it, but it actually kind of unfortunately made sense in the Russian context as I lay out in the book <laughs> that, you know, nothing to look at here, the potted plant. But, you know, that does play uh, to one's advantage. And, of course. you know, kind of, you know, as I said in the book, you know, the Russian men in particular just forget I was there and just start talking, forget I spoke Russian. I'd be like, whoa, hang on, you shouldn't be telling me this. But hey, I, I'm, I'm taking some notes. <laughs> Especially when I was NIO, I was like, yep, taking this all in, going to write it all up when I get out of here. I mean, being underestimated is, in fact, a superpower if you know how to use it. And you very clearly do and and did. I mean, you. it turns out that you had exactly the knowledge base that we were going to need in order to survive the Trump presidency for many reasons, but Russia being the big one. And I, I was really fascinated by one of your one of your takes in the book. I think a lot of us sort of assume, you know, Trump is in Putin's pocket. Putin is directing Trump. Um, you know, Russia's calling the shots here. I, you know, I, I fell into that thinking some myself because of the clear adoration that Trump has for Putin and his style of strongman leadership, etc. You call you you think that that's not the accurate read on this. Putin is not directing Trump, but you do call Russia the ghost of America's future. Yeah, I mean, there's several things going on there. I mean, first of all, um, you know, as I also learned inside of the National Security Council, Trump doesn't really take direction. Um, even from himself, um, you know, he'll have a plan and then he'll blow it because he gets distracted or something else, you know, kind of pops up and he gets irritated by something and, you know, busts through his own plan about what he's going to do. So that, you know, kind of right from the get go, once I got in there, seemed, you know, somewhat unlikely. But he can be directed by being manipulated uh, by flattery in particular, but also by insult. And so all of us have seen how thin-skinned he is and how quick he is to uh, take offence, particularly against individuals. So if anybody wanted to do someone in, all they'd do was tell Trump that um, they'd said something nasty about him. I mean, remember all of the different uh, cabinet members that somebody was, you know, information about them was leaked to the press saying that they called him an idiot or they'd done this and that. Next thing, you know, they were in the bad books and, you know, they were very quickly out the door. Uh, World leaders... um, you know, basically Secretary stuff on the National State. Security Council, you know, all of uh, the State yeah. Department embassies. After a while, we were supposed to keep long lists of all the nasty things people had said so that they wouldn't be, you know, in his presence on state visits, for example. And then the flattery. Uh, anybody on Twitter who uh, basically tweeted some compliment about him or Facebook or any of the social media platforms, anyone on television, Fox News, I mean, anybody, you know, with an obsequious. Uh, beginning to their opening statement on something they were saying that was televised and they start flattering Trump, you know, he's paying attention, he might offer them a job. And then with Vladimir Putin, for example, he never criticized him. He would just always say things that, you know, could be interpreted into English in a very positive, you know, glowing way, although actually they were often, uh, because Russia is one of these, Russians is one of these languages that is full of double entendres and, you know, nuance. (laughs) You know, sometimes it could be translated multiple ways, some of them not quite so flattering, but, Mm -hmm. you know, he would be out there saying things. And at one point that I relate in the book, Putin is on uh, TV in Russia. He knows it's going to get picked up by all the press corps, praising the performance of the stock market in the United States, praising Donald Trump's handling of the economy. And then Trump's like, oh, I've got to call Putin. He said some nice things about me. We're like, oh, no, please. That was just so obvious. He walked right into it. And that was, you know, exactly what was going on. And he admired Putin and other strong men. It was all about strong men. 
strong women not so much because I mean we had Angela mm-hmm. Merkel but she wasn't quite you know kind of uh, his style of swagger and you know the uh, the kind of celebrity bling that he wanted but he did like the Queen of England um, obviously oh. I mean, we all know she doesn't huh. have those kinds of powers but she has the allure she's the Queen you know she has all these palaces she's got great respect she's been in power forever um, you know that that was kind of the her image that he was looking at. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't about the country uh, of the particular individual. It was about them and what they seemed to stand for. And when I say that Russia's the ghost of, you know, Christmas future. It's not really going to be Christmas. It would be more like Halloween future. But anyway, that doesn't work because Dickens <laughs> didn't write, you know, a kind of Halloween story. <laughs> but it's you know kind of this sort of ghoulish, um, you know, kind of cartoonish, freakish. Uh, destination for us because we're heading down this kind of path where we had uh, you know a president who wanted to emulate uh, Vladimir Putin who wanted to be an autocrat who wanted to just kind of rule within the constitution and you know have no intermediaries no representative democracy just him and the people in the big popularity contest that's kind of what you know Putin's doing Putin's become a a monarch a, a new czar and Trump wanted to be king and he still wants to be king I mean, this is the the scary part of everything. Thinking of Halloween coming up, you know, kind of quickly on us. Is he wants to it come back? Yeah, right. yeah, he wants to come right. back again, and he's got a pretty good chance of coming back because you know, right now there's all these efforts to pervert our democracy, to make it difficult for people to vote, to question every election outcome, and every precinct that doesn't go his way in 2024. You know, to move uh, the state secretaries out who are the uh, guardians of uh, the election system. I mean, he can't affect the. Department of Justice and some of the others, uh, you know, departments and parts of our institutions that held together during his tenure. But he is, you know, trying to affect the outcome of the investigations on January 6th, saying nothing has happened. Right. You know, people are martyrs. So he could come back again in a more efficient, competent version of Trump with the loyalists around him who've pushed to keep him, uh, to get him back into power could come back. Yeah, that's the piece that I think I'm the most concerned about as well i'm not mm-hmm. as concerned about donald trump himself because like, he just has so many legal issues i mean he's got a lot of things going on that might distract him from really being able to like put forward a credible campaign for president but a you know a josh hawley or ron DeSantis or somebody trump light or just like trump i should say could could <laughs> right. get gain traction and sort of fill that void one of the things that i've i've also wanted to ask you is I mean, you were inside of the administration. You were inside of the administration for your expertise, not, you know, a political appointee, you know, that was a diehard Trump person. Um, but what is it like to be in the room when he's behaving the way you just described, which is like, you know, quick to anger because somebody said something mean, like in a normal context, not even in the presidential context, that's unusual behavior for a grown-up person like I don't know that I've been in a ton of meetings where the person in charge is like having a temper tantrum because somebody said something nice or mean right about about that I've I've seen that before and okay okay maybe I'm in different but as you said not in uh the oval office you wouldn't expect that in in a presidential I mean you know I know a few narcissists you know, yeah. oh, you know kind okay. of uh self-absorbed you know people and you know i 
I've, I've met men with, you know, these um, tendencies before, but I've usually, you know, kept away from them. In this case, we couldn't because he'd been elected mm. uh, to be the president. I didn't expect it to be quite as bad, honestly. Um, when I first went into the administration, I had ideas that, um, you know, people would realise the uh, enormous consequence of what Russia had done. I mean, I think a lot of people did, but that inside, you know, everyone would be focused on the national security crisis that this had created and the domestic crisis, of course. Right. I thought that that would go all the way up to Trump, that, you know, this was a lot of bluster and campaigning and showmanship and the reality TV guy. But then I learned very quickly that public-private Trump was exactly the same. And all the people mm. who I'd met had said that, who had, know, had known him and met him before and, you know, had done business with him and they all kept away and, you know, they were shocked that he was president. But, you know, I, I really did think that, you know, given some of the things that he'd said, he'd understand that this was a big issue, a big problem. Everybody else around him, you know, with the exception of the, perhaps the inner circle, understood that was trying to you know, do what they could to serve the country and to stave off you know a lot of these national security problems we were grappling with but Trump himself it was just all about him at all times and he couldn't disentangle himself from any issue everything was self-reflective you'd have a discussion you know about climate change which he obviously didn't want to talk about he'd bring it always back to something that he had thought of like painting buildings white and you know kind of something in the construction sense it all his, his range of experience was really narrow in terms of, you know, how he could refer to things and how he could relate. It was kind of like he was almost explaining to himself in real time. And sometimes when he was mm. with a world leader, he was getting them to explain, you know, the, the basic contours of the history of the country because he didn't even know the country that he was dealing with. He had some oh vague memory of it and he muddled them up because wow. he wouldn't read his briefing material. He wouldn't read his briefing material. And look, we all make mistakes. I mean, you, some places are hard to pronounce. You know, you, you blank on the name of the leader, you know, something in the sure. moment. But you've usually got enough, you know, sort of wherewithal to get yourself out of this. But, you know, not him because he just had not been paying attention. It was more about what was going to be like in the moment and the feel of a conversation and how he felt about it. Right. I mean, I think we, we all heard that he wasn't reading his briefings, that his briefings needed to come with visual aids, no more than one page every now and then something like that would leak out of the Trump White House. But it's it's hard to understand what the actual impact of that is, because I think a lot of people picture the White House, the president is, as, uh, you know, the, the leader, but also a figurehead. A lot of this is being done on the staff level. It's the staff that actually gets things done in the White House. They're the ones with the institutional knowledge. They're the ones with the relationships, et cetera. You just sort of expect the president not to get in the way and to help direct the way that, you know, they want they want those conversations to go. But the, you don't necessarily expect that one person to be the repository of all of the knowledge. But what happens when you have, when you, the staff, have to spend that much time managing your own principle? Like, what, what should it happen that we don't get to see happen? Like, what did America miss out on because you had to watch him behave that way? Well, look, a lot of the things that you just laid out did, in fact, happen in terms of that there was a, a, a large swathe of issues that he wasn't personally involved in. But anything that was high profile where somebody else might steal the limelight, you know, mm. that could be used, you know, for political purposes or his rallies or, you know, just sort of, you know, he could bask in, you know, kind of some sort of success. He wanted to be involved in, ev in everything. So, for example, when Ambassador Bolton was going off to um, Moscow to negotiate um, uh, on the INF Treaty and try to figure out, you know, what we were going to do with it, um, you know, as he's on the plane and I was with him at the time, President Trump is having a press gaggle as before he's off on something and he can't resist you know, just basically saying we're going to pull out. 
which, you know, that was kind of supposed to be the end part of the process because he knew that Bolton was going to be there and didn't want Bolton to steal the nuclear thunder. And it's just, you know, everything like that was sort of a distraction, even though he'd actually, in many respects, actually devolved things to people, authorised and deputised people to do something. And there were lots of things that he didn't touch, you know, so that the things that people right. didn't see were the things that he didn't touch. They saw all of the things that he suddenly thought, hang on a second, somebody else is going to get the credit for this. And that, you know, they're going, because there was lots of negotiations, serious discussions going on against the back uh, the background. Many times he didn't interfere, but it was just every time that he did, he would throw things on their heads. He did sometimes take, um, you know, a pay attention to his briefers. And I actually want to tell a positive story here, because on <laughs> okay. the occasions when he did pay attention, he thought, hey, wow, look at that. What could this have been like? Because he was always really interested in nuclear uh, issues and he did read, um, he didn't read, but he listened to the briefings on this. And he was always talking about one of the briefings that really got his attention about what would happen in a nuclear explosion, the melting of granite and all these kinds of things that really, you know, caught his attention. He thought that the ultimate catastrophe would be a nuclear war. It was a very 1980s look on things, but he was really concerned about uh, Iran, North Korea and Russia in the same basket of issues and he was actually pretty focused on all of this and he would he did listen to the intel briefers when they came just not everybody else and there was one occasion actually at Helsinki behind the scenes where Putin tried to pull a fast one on the new start treaty and the timeline because he really wanted uh, Trump to just say right away that he would extend it without any negotiation because we were running against the clock at the end of the new start treaty and there was big deliberations about what to do and in the meeting in Helsinki, Putin essentially just pretends that, you know, they can just decide just to extend it there and then. And Trump's actually read the brief or has listened to it. Whoa. And he says, no, I don't think that's quite right, uh, Vladimir. We'll have to, you know, kind of ask our, you know, colleagues afterwards, ask our guys afterwards. And, you know, the interpreter relates this to us and we're like, whoa. And then in the expanded <laughs> meeting that, you know, people see in the, uh, in the pictures, with us all sort of sitting around the table, um, Trump actually says this to, uh, you know, and he said, Vladimir told me, you know, about this the new start. And I don't think that was quite right. <laughs> Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister, just stares at Putin. And Putin looks actually ever so slightly embarrassed. He got caught out. And, uh, and we were all just sort of sitting there. Wow. You know, that, that could happen you know, if he paid attention. <laughs> and then, you know, unfortunately, of course, then we have the whole press conference and, you know, we saw what happened at Helsinki. But, you know, there was, there was just so many times when he didn't do that. And so on the occasions yeah. that he did, you, it really drew your attention. And you know, there'd be a few phone calls that were not like the Zelensky, you know, Trump phone call right. about Ukraine and, you know, do me a favor. But where he actually honed in on the issue. And, you know, for some amazingly coherent minutes of a phone call, we were like, yep, yeah, this is it. This is fantastic. Oh, and then we got diverted. You know, but it's just, I think it was an incredible, colossal, waste you know of opportunity for him as well because of the things he wanted to get done and he didn't um you know not mentioning the wall and all the other you know kind of crazy domestic issues that got at airtime but there were a lot of things on foreign policy that he could have done something with but he was just so lacking in focus and discipline and i think there was i mean obviously the whole presidency and, and what happened with democracy and everything that he's done has been tragic and a tragic comedy at times but again, a colossal waste of an opportunity. If you get to be president of the United States and you say you're going to act presidential, then you really should. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Helsinki is 
I mean, we actually, when we say it, it we all know what we mean, which right. <laughs> I think is also though. evidence of, of the fact that what happened was something we've never seen before. I mean, the way that you describe it um, is, is pretty funny because you, you say that you like wanted to like hurl yourself onto the floor and fake a seizure in that moment because of what was happening. I just give us a, a little bit of a taste of like what the heck was go what else was going through your brain because I know that it, watching it on video I can still remember the moment I first saw it and like all of the, like probably the blood rushed from my face um I was like wait did he just <laughs> did that just happen um you know and then I'm like oh Jonathan Lemire is going to be in that video for the rest of history um yeah. <laughs> as yeah. well that was the other thought I had um just give us a sense of like how incredibly alarmed you were in that moment what what it sort of meant for our national security in that moment and also did you really think about faking a seizure well i definitely did think about that i also thought about a fire alarm but i couldn't spot one this is in the presidential palace um the finnish president and there wasn't anything that looked like a fire alarm you know even with finished writing over it i was looking around <laughs> thinking what can we do just this feeling of helplessness knowing that this had to stop because it was a national humiliation not just a personal humiliation for him, but a national humiliation. This is all playing out in front of the entire world. Yeah. And look, I felt exactly like I think we can all, uh, you know, judge by the expression of Deborah Burks during that awful press conference uh, oh, yeah. in the uh, in the White House, the briefing on the, for the COVID task force, when he talks about injecting bleach. And, you know, people are going, really? He's really saying that. And he's getting himself all muddled up on something he's obviously read and been briefed. And she's got that look on her face as if she wants to die on the spot. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's how I know everyone was feeling around because I could see, you know, uh, people like Ambassador Bolton and Secretary Pompeo and our Ambassador Huntsman in front of me just stiffen. You know, I couldn't see their faces, but I saw the whole body language. And, you know, that was it. That was that moment. And we all know, oh, my God, what is happening here? Because... As I said, in the one-on-one -on -one meeting, Putin had tried to pull a fast one. He was, you know, suggesting that, you know, we wanted to interview some Russian operatives. The FBI had just indicted them the day before the summit, obviously with a <laughs> perfect timing, deliberate timing, um, right. for the intervention in the 2016 elections. Uh, you know, the indictments called, you know, obviously for them to be investigated and interviewed. And Putin's like, hey, yeah, well, of course, you know, we can let you interview these guys. And then we'd like to interview some of your guys as well for impropriety. Well, of course, these <laughs> included our ambassador to Russia. And the impropriety <laughs> was the passing of the Magnitsky Act against Russian human rights abuses in Congress and some of those members of congressional staffs and, you know, senior uh, research analysts for the State Department, for example. You know, this was just a, this was all for political show and to push everybody's buttons. And, you know, the interpreter was quick to tell us about what had happened. President Trump was clueless on that one as well, because he didn't know what Putin was talking about. He didn't know, you know, the kind of ins and outs um, of that issue. Not that it had been brief, but he just didn't know, you know, quite what was going on there. So we get to the press conference and Trump is, you know, basking in the glow of having had a serious conversation with Putin. Okay, there'd been something he hadn't quite picked up on there, but he had actually caught Putin out on the fast one on the New START Treaty. And Mid talked about the next steps, further meetings on nuclear arms and the National Security Council's meeting. It had been what he'd wanted, a proper summit. And then it's the press conference. And it's, you know, for his perspective, nobody gave him any prayers for dealing with nuclear catastrophe. This wasn't like Gorbachev and Reagan or Gorbachev and H.W. Bush. 
Instead, it was all back to 2016 and did Putin put you in office? You're not legitimate, are you? And he never wanted to deal with that. Every time that that issue came up, he got angry. He didn't want to be shown up in front of Putin because Putin's the strong man that he uh, basically relates to the most. Him and President Xi of China and President Erdogan of Turkey. You know, these are the big guys. He's obviously mortified that he's been asked these Mm -hmm. questions because, of course, he wasn't pushing Putin on this issue behind the scenes because he doesn't want Putin. You know, somewhere at the back of his mind, what if Putin said, yeah, actually, Donald, I did. I did interfere in the election to get you elected. I mean, what's he going to do? Right. I mean, his mind would explode um, because, you know, right. Putin would be messing with him in that regard. Because, and, and also for Putin, what an amazing thing to be basically credited with electing a US president. I mean, this is the right. best thing that, you know, he, po- he could possibly hear. So, um, you know, Trump is then, you know, basically trying to get himself out of that question, trying not to answer it, trying to deflect it over to the server, the Clinton's emails and everything that he can think of to sort of throw distracting, you know, um, information out, disinformation, misinformation, like flack, you know, that they're through to distract planes yeah. over World War II when they're going in a bombing exercise. It's just all over the place. <laughs> and we're right. all watching this and we knew this was going to happen if this happened, because it's what happened every single time. Right. And there he does it. He has a meltdown on uh, the world stage and embarrasses himself and everyone else. I'm, <sighs> Sometimes I'm, I, I'm so grateful that we... Well, I'm grateful that you were you were here this morning, but I'm I'm also grateful that we're all still here. I think about when I hear these stories, I'm just like, oh yes. my gosh, we were we were really in danger. Yeah, but we could um, we could be it again, though. I mean, that's yeah, the no, point. I mean, this is need. the reason why everyone's yeah. you know, writing the books. Who's become disaffected right. from his inner circle? They've finally realized. Yeah, I mean, most of the people realized for a long time. I mean, you know, I I went into the administration trying to do something about Russia, worried about Russia you know, trying right. to serve the country. I come out the other end, really worried about the country, less worried about <laughs> Russia, and just, you know, kind of really perplexed about how we can get to a state where our presidency has been captured, you know, by one person, mm. by, you know, the whole of, you know, the US government right. has become enthralled to an individual. And we've got a personality cult, just like, you know, I've seen in other countries, Ooh. including in the Soviet Union, and we've still got yeah. it. And there are millions right. of people, you know, still duped. And, you know, this isn't ideological, this is psychological. Yeah. So this isn't right. about partisan politics. It's not about Republican versus Democrat. The people who are supporting Trump, enabling this, it's all about their own personal private power and also because they've become literally enamored by him. It's the charisma, it's the sort of showmanship, it's the bullying, it's the larger than life personality who's kind of got them in their grip. I mean, this is a mass psychosis. It really feels yes. like that a lot of the time. I, I don't know if you, um, you know, want to come back on the show, but I have a million more questions now based on this conversation alone um 100 um so i am so grateful um that you took the time to join us this morning fiona hill um is somebody that i think we all are grateful to um for your testimony in the first impeachment i think that was like that was a moment i mean there were a lot of moments in that first impeachment um trial but i think your testimony um, is one I won't forget just because for the clarity. And um, similarly, this interview, there is nothing for you here is the book. It is out now. And Fiona Hill, um, thank you. Thank oh, you so thanks much. so much for having me. It's uh, been great. For, thanks for a lot. Helping us all stay alive because uh, yeah. <laughs> if you guys weren't in there, well, who knows? Uh, who knows what, what would happen? But you're right. We still have to be vigilant. Thank you all so much for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at Zerlina Maxwell, at Jess underscore MC, and at Signal Boost Show.